Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined, as always, by Elizabeth Young. That, of course, is EY of SoFi. Elizabeth, how are you? Buenos dias. I am wonderful. Happy Monday to you and everybody listening. To you as well. Today, by the way, later on, we're going to be joined by Tom James. He's the CEO and CIO and co-founder of Trade Flow. That's a fascinating conversation that Dan and I had, so stick around by the way, Art Delacruz this Friday, a special drop of the On The Tape podcast from Team Rubicon. And we have a special giveaway on the back of that. So stay tuned. Elizabeth, that's all the housekeeping. Let's talk about the markets because I will tell you, once again, I find myself Thursday and Friday of last week on the very confused side of the equation. Yes, it was It was maybe not the direction that we would have expected immediately, but I don't know that it's entirely confusing yet. I think there's relief. And, and we've talked about this a little bit. Yields come down. The yield curve is re-steepening. There's relief that now the Fed is all but confirmed done with this hiking cycle. They just can't really say that they're done with the hiking cycle. So the immediate interpretation, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, thank goodness, it might be done, right? It might be over. They're not going to constrict any further. But I think what we haven't seen yet, and I, I'm not saying that it's wrong or right to say that this is a new uptrend or that this is a bear market rally, but that's where the debate is now. We don't know the answer to either of those things. If it is a new uptrend, what we need to see is things that will confirm that. So things like high beta outperforming low beta, discretionary outperforming staples. You need to see breadth that continues to strengthen for multiple days in a row. Now, we did see some strong breadth last week. And what I mean by that is the advance versus decline in the S&P. But we're still at a point where only 44% of the S&P is trading above its 200-day moving average. So we don't have confirmation yet. I think that last week was 
a relief rally. I'm not going to call it a bear market rally, but I do think that there was a lot of relief in it. And I don't know that that should be entirely surprising after the few months that we've had. It's interesting that the interpretation of bad news, and it has been a series of negative data that's come across, ISM data, the jobs data, which by the way, now eight months of revisions lower. So clearly the jobs picture is deteriorating right before our very eyes, yet market participants seemingly are championing that. And to your point about the Fed, and I know you know this as well, but it's important to point out, I agree. And quite frankly, I don't even know if it matters at this point what the Fed does in terms of hiking, not hiking. The damage has been done and it's manifesting itself in the data. So the fact that the market or whatever participants in the market, whatever algorithms are out there are interpreting this as good news is sort of odd to me because as job market deteriorates, almost by definition, the consumer is going to be weakened, which is 73% of the economy, which by definition means things start to slow down. So I think your point is well taken. I understand, I guess, what we saw last week, and I think it was a bit of a relief rally. But I think if the market really woke up and saw what was going on, I don't think they'd be nearly as uh, joyous as they seem to be right now. Here's where we're at right now. And and if I'm the Fed, uh, you know, not not that they're going to necessarily say something like this, but we've all sort of sat back and said, okay, now just let the clock run. We have to sit back and see what happens. We have to see how all of these hikes start to feed through the system. We have to see all of the pipeline that still has not come through. I mentioned this, I think, last week. We seem to forget that we did four 75 basis point hikes in a row. That is fast and furious. And then we had another 150 basis points of hikes after that. So all of that stuff has not come through the pipeline yet. The other thing that I think market participants need to ask themselves is, If you're on the side of thinking, okay, the Fed is done, that's good. Yields came down, that's good. This is this has the markings of a new rally or a durable uptrend. You have to ask ask yourself, why are they done? Why would they be done hiking? If your answer to that is because inflation is coming down, okay. But then the market should have reacted like this the last time that we had inflation data. And that's not what happened. The market started reacting like this when we started to get weaker economic data. And Friday's economic data confirmed that weaker economic data. And the idea that the unemployment rate is still below 4%, yes, signals health, and yes, signals that we still have a tight jobs market, but it's been rising at a pretty steady rate. And if you look over history, which I know is a guide, not a rule, if you look over history, when you see that little turn up in the unemployment rate, it starts very slowly, but then it goes up very quickly. And it usually happens when you get certain readings, so the, the, the now readings that become higher than the averages, so whether it's a 12-month moving average or a three-year moving average, you get those readings that start to tick above the averages, and we're right on the cusp of that happening. So it's danger zone time and still not confirmed in either direction, but I think that a lot of the assumption about the Fed being done has more to do with the fact that the economy is cooling rather than things needing to come back down to neutral and us being in a really, really healthy spot. What you're saying is that move in jobs is going to be nonlinear, and I agree with that. You know, It starts to tick higher, and I think the hope is it ticks higher in a sort of very controlled fashion, and we get to a level that everybody's comfortable with, and then it stops. The problem, of course, is the same way the Fed thought they could control inflation, which clearly they could not because on this November 7th or whatever day today is, it's clearly still a problem, is I think the same way they think they can control the labor market, 
which they cannot because once again, once that thing starts to cascade, once that genie's out of the bottle, I think you're going to get to four and a half to five percent a lot faster than people think. And I'm not sure the market's going to enjoy that as much as it seemingly thinks it will right now. I think there's going to be a mental threshold. And and for whatever reason, I feel like that mental threshold is probably about four and a half percent. So I think we're probably still comfortable with it as investors as the unemployment rate gets to four and then the low fours. Somewhere around four and a half percent, I imagine people will get a little uncomfortable and say, "Okay, that's enough. That's good. Let's reverse directions or stop. But that, as you mentioned, the Fed doesn't make that decision. Companies are making those decisions and companies are making those decisions on the heels of the capital constriction that's been going on and their revenue line dropping because inflation is dropping. So the Fed cannot control that whatsoever. The only way that the Fed might be able to affect that is to pump liquidity into the system. And we obviously can't do that until inflation is solved. The other thing, the other point I want to make, and and we talked about this on Market Call on Thursday, and Dan made me even clarify it so that it would be totally clear to our audience. I said on Thursday after the Fed meeting that I think the Fed is going to have to cut rates long before the market thinks they're going to. At that point, the market was pricing in the first cut in July of next year, maybe decidedly later, September-ish, but July of next year was the first cut. On Friday, after the jobs data came out, after we saw some cooling in those numbers, that first cut got pulled forward now almost two months. We've got a 66% chance priced in of a cut in May of next year, 100% chance of of a cut priced in in June. So we pulled it forward already one and a half or two months, depending on how you look at that. And I don't think that that is a surprise either. It might even get pulled forward faster as the data continues to cool. So I think those cuts too, you have to ask yourself, why would they be cutting? Would they be cutting because things are cooling? So if the reaction to Friday's data was that they are going to cut sooner, I don't think that that is a positive sentiment. The bulls will say we want to get ahead of those cuts because those cuts will suggest a mission accomplished type of thing where everything has fallen into place. The unemployment rate has gone higher, but not markedly so. We still have significant growth. Inflation is cooling. All the things that we wanted to happen were going to happen. We saw no credit event. The stock market's hanging in there. And that's the bull case that if you're going to see a cut in May, it's because everything is coming up roses. I'm hard pressed. to, un- And I understand what you're saying. The data suggests exactly that. You know, I'm hard pressed to understand an environment where if they're cutting in May, inflation is under control. I don't see there's any, given what I'm seeing right now, this sort of reacceleration in things, I'm, I'm hard pressed to understand how the inflation portion of this equation is going to be under control. Everything I don't think can sort of line up for them by spring of next year. I don't think so either. Look, stranger things have happened. The concept here is much like the one that we've talked about ad nauseum, about the yield curve. It's not the inversion that gets you, it's the re-steepening. In this case, it's not the first set of hikes that gets you, it's actually the cuts. And if you look at the market reaction in between, sometimes there is a pretty strong rally in between the last hike and the first cut because people are excited that it's over, excited that the hiking cycle is over. But once you get to that cut, it is very, very difficult, except for maybe in the 90s. There is not really a good example of a time when the Fed started cutting rates and it was a good reaction in the market afterwards because they usually have to cut in response to data that has now become too cool or so soft that now they're trying to save it rather than get in front of it. And and look, 
we can sit here and criticize the Fed and say, oh, they're always wrong. They always do it too late. They always do it too far. That may be the case. The reality is the data that they're dealing with is always backward looking. So they can't really do it exactly at the right time unless somehow they have superpowers and and some kind of premonition to know exactly what's going on. So there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of inaccuracies in some of the data and the fact that the timing is tough. The last thing I'll say is a lot of the data that we talk about, and I point to it too, it's survey data. So you're asking companies or you're asking consumers how they're feeling, right? Or what their sense is of what's going on either in their own home, in the job market, in the orders market, right? You've got a lot of small business sentiment surveys. These are just surveys. It's people responding with their opinions and their feelings about what's going on. It's not always hard data. So this is a really tricky thing to get right. Jacob and Amanda have just come up with the title of this podcast. And I don't know if you're a Rod Stewart fan. Are you? I actually have seen Rod Stewart a number of times. That surprises me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I will say, you know, Rod Stewart in his day was a member of the band faces uh ronnie wood was in that band a bit of a i mean they were a rock and roll band he's gone sort of more the sinatra tony bennett route in his later life but that's neither here nor there because one of his songs his hit songs is the first cut is the deepest and Ah. jacob and a man have decided that's the title for this podcast and i agree that first cut when and if it happens is going to be fascinating to watch so excellent job by them there's the next question for you is we I struggle with this people ask me about this I'm sure you get it as well. Are you being dogmatic in your views or you know do you still believe all the things that you talk about? And the answer is yes I do. And I understand that dogma thing. I mentioned that cuz Mike Wilson obviously I'm going to read a couple things from Morgan Stanley. He basically is warning that the gains that we're seeing are a bear market rally which by the way I happen to agree with. Citing a gloomy earnings outlook, weaker macro data, and we've been talking about that, and deteriorating analyst views, quote, we find it difficult to get more excited about a year-end rally, he added, noting that a gain looks more like a bear market rally rather than the start of a sustained upswing. Quote, the drop in Treasury yields was more related to the lower-than-expected coupon issuance and guidance and weaker economic data as opposed to the bullish interpretation for equities that the Fed is going to cut rates earlier next year. So he's saying a lot of things that we're saying. I respect his work. I know you do as well. And I happen to agree. I mean, I think Treasury sort of bailed us out a little bit last week when they pulled back on some of the issuances. But that doesn't mean they're just sort of basically playing a waiting game. You know, they're going to try to do short term, short term. At a certain point, they're going to have to pull the trigger because their hope is that rates come down and they can somehow thread that needle of the issuance that still has to come out with a debt of now $33 trillion or so, Elizabeth. The 30,000-foot debate is, was the correction in 2022 the one that we needed? Did that solve it? And I, I always think about the sequence. You have the market goes first, earnings go next, economy last. If that was the checking the box of the market goes first. So we had that drawdown. We had the bear market. It wasn't, it was kind of cute. It was like a cute little bear, but we had it. And then earnings, we've had now three quarters consecutively of negative earnings growth. So if that was the earnings box that we checked, okay, done. Now the last one that we need to check is the economy. 
it's started as in inflation has come down. We've seen some cooling in the data. We've got really some some cruddy PMI data that continues to come in. We've got really jumpy consumer confidence because people aren't sure how they should feel about it. But the other parts of the economy, like GDP growth, you know, we obviously just saw a really hot third quarter, but that is not expected to continue. So GDP growth, inflation continuing to come down, uh, we need that to happen. And we've got now this labor thing that we're watching. And I think everybody can can agree that it's cooling and we're watching it with a really keen eye to see how quickly it cools. So now we wait and see if this is just the economic slowing that we've been waiting to check the box on that would confirm that that was the only bear market we needed in 2022. The other side of the debate, which it sounds like this might be where Mike is, this is the part that I worry about, is that 2022 wasn't enough, that that was somewhat of a repricing because assets had gotten so overbought 2022 wasn't quite enough because it also didn't have a recession and you rarely see the market bottom before the recession. So if that was the bottom, then it was absent a recession, which, okay, maybe this is one of the first times that we reset the business cycle without a recession. But the concern is that it wasn't enough and we still have to see a bigger one and a bigger reset. And that's what we're waiting to find out. Bear market rallies are usually, if not always, very ferocious. They are, they're tricky because they lead everybody to believe that they're real and that they're durable. Last week was a pretty ferocious rally. We had a day of a 500 point up day in the Dow, right? We haven't seen that in a very long time. So it was a ferocious rally. It was a ferocious rally across the indexes, but there were some places that didn't participate or there were some spots that did participate that aren't sending durable rally signals, things like gold going up so strongly. Small caps did go up a little bit, but they didn't necessarily get out of the woods. So you want to see some of those confirmations, much like what I mentioned earlier in the podcast. You want to see high beta versus low. You want to see discretionary versus staples. You don't want to see gold going up so strongly. So I I just don't think we have confirmation yet that we're out of the woods and that 2022 was the only correction we needed. Yeah, listen, I agree with you. I think 2022 is a bit of a tremor ahead of what could be a larger earthquake. But you know, a lot of people say we've dodged a bullet here. I will tell you on the good side of the equation, you know, on the credit side of things, there was a period of time a couple of weeks ago where the HYG, the high yield credit ETF, looked like it was going to roll over either side of 72. That has bounced pretty significantly for that. So the credit market is telling you, you know, we don't see any worries here. I, I Again, it's going to be interesting to see how they dodge that bullet, given some of the volatility we're seeing in interest rates. And this is from now the head of research at BlackRock. The question we ask, if surge in rates has fed through to equities, our answer is not yet. That's basically what you're saying. We think there's more downward adjustment to come, but we expect to see better environment in 2024 once the adjustment is complete. Okay. The research team there said he expects global growth to stagnate over the coming year as the U.S. economy is weaker than it appears. I would agree with that. And equities don't reflect the higher rate environment we see persisting. If it turns out that we're wrong and there's a material pickup in economic growth or sustained pullback in rates, maybe we'll change our course. So rates going lower, again, it it goes back to how we started this. You know, people are championing that, but I don't think they fully understand the magnitude. First of all, 50 basis points from 5% to 4.5% over five or six trading days is as historic as some of the moves that we saw to the upside. And the bond volatility is still here in spades. That's not going away. So if you think it's going to be clear sailing now for the next six months, 
I think you're wrong. And I think some of that obviously is what BlackRock is trying to say in that note. The other thing that that I would ask myself, and I do ask myself, is some of the other stress that we've been talking about, things like delinquencies ticking up, you've got credit card debt at really, really high levels. The delinquencies ticking up and the issues that we're seeing are some of the, the cracks that we're seeing in that consumer credit part of the market. Is it because only because rates were high? And I think the answer to that is no. That added onto it. That was fuel to the fire. But it's because people started to overspend. And then they continued to overspend, drain down the savings, and then they were trying to make ends meet. Rates being so high added to the strain on their wallets, as did inflation, as did gas prices, you name it. But it's not just because rates were high. I say that because then if you're thinking about it, intellectually, you have to be consistent. If it's good that rates are coming down, then if that was the only problem, it should solve all of these other issues. It should make consumers stop being delinquent. It should lower delinquencies. It should reduce all of the issues that we've been talking about. Credit card debt should come down. I'm not convinced that that's going to be the case. I think that we're seeing the beginning of some of this stress. And I say that also because you mentioned spreads. You're right. The high yield market, the investment grade market has not shown signs of stress. We haven't gotten anywhere near what crisis levels of spreads have have seen before. Maybe we won't, but I don't think that we know that for sure yet. And the activity in small caps tie that into this. The activity in small caps and the weakness in small caps, the reason that they've gotten hit so hard is because small cap companies generally cannot internally finance their growth. They have to go to debt markets. They have to go to equity markets. So weakness that we've seen in the market in small caps could just be a premonition saying that we will eventually see a blowout in spreads because as that debt starts to roll over or as there are companies that cannot meet those obligations, then it starts to hit the bond market. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it won't happen. But I think that the warning is there in the equity market. You know, I'm glad you said that you have to be intellectually honest. And a lot of people do this. You completely dismiss rates going higher as a function of whatever. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And then when rates go markedly lower, say that's the salve for everything. And the fact that the all clear sign is now being shown brightly on the New York City skyline. You can't have it both ways. It's both or it's neither. And again, bond volatility to me is still just a tell that there's stress on the system. It's interesting that the equity market seems so certain of something, yet the bond market seems so uncertain. And as you know, the bond market's a lot bigger. Savita Submaranian from Bank of America, we follow her very closely. Uh, She turned bullish a few months ago. In a tweet she put out, the economy is cooling, but companies have had their earnings recession. They've cut costs and are now enjoying margin expansion. I understand about the cost cutting, but cost cutting comes in the form of laying people off. And to a large extent, you're going to see more of that. I'm not certain about the margin expansion part. I've seen it sort of around the edges, but I haven't seen enough to believe that we're going to start to see margin expansion. That ship sailed a long time ago. I'm guessing she's talking about the expectation of margin expansion. You know, Next year, we've got expectations still of 12% earnings growth, but only 6% revenue growth by mathematical ways that does say that there's somehow margins are expanding, but it also says that costs need to be cut further. This is a, a really nuanced take, but I think this is what we're going to start to see. And we did actually see it in one of the Magnificent Seven stocks this time around. During earnings seasons going forward, I think companies are going to be rewarded much more if they beat or meet based solely on cost cutting. So if the commentary is 
we cut our costs, we trimmed the fat, therefore we meet expectations or we beat expectations. I think there's a reward for that. That is not really a positive sentiment. That's not something that is creating sustainable growth going forward. That's still companies saying, okay, we're cutting, we're cutting, we're cutting. So we're being good stewards of capital by not overspending. But to your point, at at some level, that cutting starts to bleed into the employment picture. Companies have cut labor in the tech sector, and that didn't really upset anyone. That was really, that happened last year, end of end of the year before, beginning of this year. That didn't upset anyone because they were already inflated. I think if you start to hear that across the board from other companies, there was actually a shipping company a few days ago that made Maersk. an announcement of a lot uh, of cuts. Yeah. Right. So you start to hear that in industrials, you start to hear that in cyclicals. If that bleeds through, that starts to get contagious just from a sentiment standpoint and cost cutting becomes a bad thing. But I think for a little while, we're going to we're gonna see companies get rewarded for cutting costs. The comments out of the CEO of Maersk were alarming. I think they've already cut 6,500 jobs. They're anticipating another 3,500. And I'm paraphrasing, but you know, basically saying 2024 looks dire. And you're talking about one of the largest shipping companies, if not the largest shipping company in the world. And when they make comments like that, again, you can't dismiss it. You, and, and people say that I cherry pick. I understand that. I try to look at all the different things. But to just dismiss that out of hand, I think, is is foolish. This week is fascinating. Here's what we have today. Now, by the time this comes out, it might have already happened. But a Fed governor, Lisa Cook, speaks today. Uh, Michael Barr, he's a Fed vice chair for supervision, speaks tomorrow. Christopher Waller speaks tomorrow. Uh, Lisa Cook speaks again on Wednesday. Jerome Powell speaking on Wednesday. Michael Barr again on Wednesday. Fed Vice Chair Philip Jefferson speaks on Wednesday. And Jerome Powell speaking, I believe, at an IMF event on Thursday. Fed speak all over the place. So it's going to be interesting to hear if they speak with a common voice, if you get some of the divergences we've seen before. So Although it looks like a quiet week, there are a lot of things still to be watching, I think. Absolutely. That's a that's a lot of speakers. And we've seen it before where we've got a break in meetings. There's not a whole lot going on from a data perspective. The market is searching for a reason to do something. And this could be one of those weeks where you've got a statement by someone that sends things in one direction or another. It'll also be interesting to hear their take now that we have that jobs data from Friday. We haven't really heard from the Fed since that data came out. It'll be interesting to hear what they say if they change their tune at all, or if there's any nuances in the language that they use, particularly Jerome Powell, if there's any nuances in that, that the language that might confirm that they are done hiking, or if they're going to continue to be much more hawkish, which I think they've actually tried over and over again to sound hawkish, the market just doesn't entirely believe it. So it'll be interesting to hear if there's a tone shift this week as a result of the labor data. The market obviously hangs on their every word and tone is important. But right now, it seems as though the market is saying these guys and gals have gotten it right. And in fact, as we get to the seasonality, which I'm not a huge believer in, but you know there are a lot of people that believe November historically is a decent month into December. You know, if we start to see quiet markets, markets tend to levitate in the absence of bad news. So we'll just see if that continues. I'm hard pressed to believe that it is. And Danny and I and Dan, you've brought it up. What's going on in Japan is still front and center. Dollar yen traded north of 151 last week. It's pulled back a little bit, but you know the alarm bells are clearly going off there. You've seen what's going on in their ten years. The JGBs have gone to levels we haven't seen in many, many years. The currency weakness is a problem, and that does not cure itself overnight either. So 
as much as there's to like in terms of the S&P 500 at 4370, there's just as much to be leery of in terms of what we're seeing in some of these other developed economies. One of the fallacies that you can fall into is everything's fine in my house, and it doesn't matter that other people's houses are not looking good. It does matter. And it matters in ways that maybe isn't obvious to investors on their day-to-day basis, but it does matter under the surface. And it matters for all of the leverage that is out there, that carry trade of Japanese yen that has not necessarily come home to roost yet. But if there's a lot of movement in the currency market, it will. And rates moving like they have, that risk is is clear and it's out there and it's out there in a big way. So the idea that, okay, but my house is intact, other houses might be falling down around me, but I'm okay. It is all connected and financial markets will continue to have impact and reverberate around the globe, particularly the big ones. It's one thing when it's a really small market in an emerging nation that doesn't necessarily have ties or that that isn't big enough to affect others. But the Japanese market is big enough to affect others. So it's not something that we can ignore. Not a lot on the earnings front this week. We have Disney, I believe, Wednesday after the bell. Obviously, that's always fun to watch. Stock is not obviously traded particularly well. Something I'll be watching tomorrow, DHI, obviously a home builder, before the market tomorrow, what I will say is it appears as though once we breached four and a half to the upside, obviously a while ago, that's when home builders started to take notice and the stock sold off. Obviously, when we got to 5% in the 10-year, that was probably the trough for a lot of those stocks. Those stocks have rebounded on yields coming back down. The supply-demand imbalances still exist. They have not gone away, but it's going to be fascinating to see, for me at least, how the market interprets this move in yields in terms of what they want to do with sort of that space, Elizabeth, if that makes sense. Yes. And the housing data, you can go through my Twitter feed. I have a couple tweets about this. Housing data is very delayed, particularly home price data. It's usually about two months behind. So we saw that big spike in mortgage rates in September, October-ish, the 8% level. But we haven't seen data that was happening at the same time in prices yet. So we have to wait for it. It's it's very, very lagged. The housing market also doesn't react as quickly as some of the other data does. Some of it even has a one-year lag. So you've got, if supply is going up in the market, trying to take care of that imbalance, you don't have a reaction in home prices typically until a year later, a year after supply has increased. So that's a picture that, again, has been confounding, I think, for economists and the market kind of chopped around in the midst of it. But it's been a theory that, oh, well, the housing market should cool, of course, because mortgage rates have gone up so much. I'm pretty convinced that it will cool. It just hasn't happened yet. And because we've got people refusing to move, which they should, it's not the best financial decision to move if you don't have to. But because there just hasn't been as much activity, it's difficult to figure out what's actually going on. So I think that lagged effect too, which is separate, that lagged effect will start to come through in 2024. When we come back, Tom James of Trade Flow, stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers 
with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome back to On the Tape. We are joined by Tom James. He is a CEO and CIO and co-founder of Trade Flow. Tom, welcome to the pod. Hello. Thanks, guys, for having me here today. All right. So, Tom, we've spent a lot of time on the pods over the last, God, it, it, it seems a few years now where commodities have taken center stage in the macro conversations here. Obviously, a lot of the disconnects as it related to supply chains with COVID and then into the war in Ukraine and then just a whole host of the inflationary sort of pressures that have emerged in this kind of post COVID world, commodities are at the center stage. And we really want to get into all of your macro takes. You've been multiple decades trading, managing risk in the commodity macro space here. But we really want to drill down first, Tom, on trade flow, because it seems like we have a lot of folks who come on the pod and we get immediately where their expertise is. And you are clearly one of those as it relates to commodities. But your fund structure is really interesting. You are out in Singapore and you've taken the confluence of a whole host of your skill sets over three decades in the markets, and it really kind of has manifested itself in trade flow. We'd love to get a sense of your background in commodities and how you and your partners arrived at this fund structure for trade flow. It all went uh, wrong or went right when I was 17, and I told my dad, hey, I want to get out there. So I went down to the trading floors in London, and he said, okay, you got a year. If it doesn't work out, you're coming back to college. Uh, I didn't go back. 33 years later, I'm uh, still uh, trading away, having worked in banks and also in mining firms and energy firms. I used to join the Navy to see the world. Now you join the commodity industry, and you can get around quite a lot for anyone who's thinking about their career moves out there. You talked about inflation and everything, and what has happened? Happened, particularly after the GFC, the global financial crisis, is that there's so many changes in banking regulations. It just got harder and harder for the banks to lend to small companies to even just move basic goods, basic commodities. We're talking about stuff to eat, heat, and build stuff with. This is raw commodities, nothing fancy, no Ferraris or Lamborghinis here. This is just raw materials. And in fact, right now, some of the inflation we're probably experiencing is because so much of the, particularly food stuff, gets moved by small firms, and their cost of capital has gone up exponentially, multiple times, you know, uh, that of what the Fed will charge uh, uh, the banks to borrow money. So, 
back in 2016, as you said, employing a lot of skill sets. You know, me and the team, we come from shipping, legal, technology, myself on commodity trading and risk. And we put that all together to look at how can we help SMEs, small firms all over the world, not just in Asia, get the money they need to move stuff, keep things moving. We found that the best way was actually not to lend them money. We're the only fund that is doing it the way we're doing it right now, and for good reason. You know, we'd love to say we're geniuses, but actually it's just because it just takes a lot of hard work and a lot of money. Is because if you don't lend people the money to move stuff, it means you have to own that stuff. But then if you own that stuff as a security, you have to keep track of it. And you have to handle a lot of documentation. So from 2016 to 2018, we had to build a massive digital platform, digitize everything, get it into data form, build systems to track containers, track shipping and everything like that. We've had to do that. And so since 2018, you know, uh, running the funds, helping SMEs out, but also importantly, giving investors a very stable asset-backed return. And because we didn't lend money, we didn't lose money either. When COVID hit, uh, we we're able to get through that. It's great to have you. The Goldman Sachs Commodities Index, I think when it's created, I want to say it was 22 different commodities. I'm not sure. I might be off by one or two. And I think it was at one point, it was 51% energy, specifically crude oil, but obviously products as well. So when you talk about commodities, obviously, I think people understand energy is such a huge component, but I don't think people realize the importance of the grain market and the soft commodities market. So can you speak to the sort of those secondary and tertiary commodities that you probably traffic in? I'm really glad that you asked me about that because actually agris is perhaps the hardest hit. They are typically smaller cargo volumes, smaller value. So it, it's even harder for the banks often to be able to profitably finance those small transactions because the banks are having to carry a lot of weight, a lot of baggage in terms of processes, onboarding customers and doing trades, right? So as a fund manager, we had to digitize everything, make things much, much lighter. So those, the agri-traders, the guys moving soya beans, moving grains, moving beans, moving rice, could actually do that through us and we could do that cost effectively because people sometimes complain that uh, commodity trading in the physical market, the margin is small. Ours is even smaller. We're a fund manager. <laughs> we only get a small cut of whatever we make for the investors. So we had to do it very streamlined there. But I think, yeah, the agri-sectors really hit. So their cost of capital has just exponentially gone up. And that's definitely been, I think, an underlying supply side issue in terms of contributing to the inflation that we're all seeing in the supermarkets these days. I don't think, again, for the layperson they don't understand some of the intricacies of commodities trading and commodity shipping for that matter. And then you talk about layering on top of your business, the geopolitical risk around commodities. Forget about obviously loss of life, which we're all obviously concerned about and very sympathetic too. But the geopolitical risk around what you do is fascinating. And if you just think about the war in Ukraine, you know, you say what you want about Russians' intentions, but a big part of that was to control effectively part of the commo the global commodity market. So speak to that, because obviously that plays into your business as well. We were actually helping farmers in Ukraine export, and they were exporting oils, grains. A lot of that was going, the grains going into Africa a lot. The vegetable oils coming even to India and Asia as well, big buyers there. When things started to get pretty 
scary leading up to the invasion there by Russia. Obviously, the first thing that gets cut, banks see the risk and people can't lend the money. We were able to, I'm glad to say, continue to support the Ukrainian exporters right up until the first missile started flying around. The reason for that is that by not lending money, we could de-risk the trade. First, we said, hey, we'll buy the goods, give you the cash for that for our end buyers at the warehouse where you're packing the containers. Then we said, no, the container needs to be at the port. And then when things were really getting a bit too spicy, shall we say, we said it has to be on the ship. The ship's moving, but we could still operate. We could de-risk and we could keep it everything insured because we use marine insurance and that covers war risks and damages and stuff like that. Then we had to stop for a while, but I'm glad to say that we're helping again and cross-border into Romania, into Poland, and places like this for exporting from Ukraine. We're usually able to go onshore, boots on the ground, as it were, and work in areas where to lend money can be difficult. But if you can track assets, you can secure commodities, and you can insure them and manage the physical security much easier than perhaps just credit lending security. So, Tom, it's interesting that this focus on geopolitical, it feels like we're in a period where we're going to have some rolling crises here, right? And if you think about what's going on in the Middle East right now, if you think about reshoring away from China and and some of the sensitivity there about the potential for some sort of provocation with Taiwan, it seems like what you guys have created, this fintech platform, is it applicable to things outside of just the commodity markets? A lot of the stuff that we We talk about the components that go into our smartphones and the like. They are commoditized uh, in and of themselves and have a lot of similar dynamics as it relates to the kind of logistics of creating them and then obviously getting them to consumers. Our fintech helps us keep track of stuff. and We're making that technology now. Our focus was to be able to safely invest people's money and get a good return, but in doing so also for profit, help SMEs and keep their cost of funding lower than perhaps from alternative financing means, right? Because we take less risk, we control the assets, so we don't have to charge as much from a a risk return basis. The interesting thing is that same technology we can give to the SME firms, they can now track their cargoes better. They can also improve their supply chains. Um, And that data as well, they can provide to other financing people that we don't do like invoice receivables or further down the supply chain, but we can certainly provide data to help uh, our customers, our SME firms, get other funding at other stages of the supply chain. We've also been able to bring confidence, which was, we didn't see this coming at all, but we've actually helped some first-time exports of commodities, some in the agri-sector, improving like uh, from Rwanda, red beans exported to Europe, to India, to, to where people wouldn't buy it because you know, they wouldn't, they didn't have people on the ground. They couldn't trust it, but they know that we're doing our due diligence and we're tracking. So that brings them confidence. And on the metal side, you talk about phones, lithium, yep. scrap, copper, a lot of lenders, a lot of banks, because it's it's a heavy lifting thing. You need expertise inside the bank to really understand what you are investing in. We have that expertise. We support SMEs get scrap copper, for example, scrap lithium for reprocessing. It's very important. Lithium, you know, it, you get small amounts of that in a lot of earth. So it's good for the environment if we can recycle that. Copper scrap. I couldn't believe the numbers, right? I, I read this very strong report. Even if all the copper mines in the world are running flat out in five or six years' time, we're going to have a 9 million ton a year shortage of copper. And we want to electrify the world. 
we have to start really recycling stuff. That's also something we, we're very proud of being able to support. We've spent a lot of time talking about the electrification of, let's say, the automobile industry and the like. And right now, it seems like there seems to be pressure to the downside on the idea that there was a shortage of vehicles being made to basically a shortage of the materials that go into the batteries to now a glut of, of these sorts of things. And it seems to be weighing on at least many of the stocks globally right now. I'd love to get a sense of like when an investor comes to you, when they come to trade flow funds, what are they looking for? Where does this investment fit into like their kind of purview and what are they trying to achieve? We've been described by some investors as excitingly boring. So, you know, if you're looking for high volatility and excitement in the returns up and down every other day, we don't provide that. But if you're looking for something which is quite predictable, because we invest in regular supply chains, you know, not one-off speculative import exports or cargo, we're able to really plan and deploy capital very effectively and, and keep the returns and the cash drags to the very bare minimum. So we've seen a few investors over the last few years when bonds were, were flying around and not performing well using us as an alternative to fixed income. We providing certainly, I think, above average returns at the moment is like about 8.7, 8.8% on, on US dollars per year. You know, that has been you know steadily increasing uh, as the Fed have been putting rates up. But the volatility returns is just like 0.3%, something like that. It's very steady, stable returns. So we're definitely fitting in the kind of the stable portion as a kind of a, everyone talks about the sort of 60 40 mix or the portfolio bonds and fixed income traditional stuff hasn't been doing great we've been fitting as one funder fund we know actually they just we don't trade fixed income anymore you are our fixed income because mm. we're not fixed income but we're stable we're boring predictable but also because we don't lend money we also give people diversification away from private credit a lot of money's gone into private credit so if people feel overexposed to that take a look at what we're doing tom typically sanctions take place in the form of the commodity world and you think about globally it gets extraordinarily confusing i'm sure and your business obviously has to take into consideration what countries are allowed to do commerce and trade with other countries? How do you navigate that risk? That's a very good question. As uh, me and my co-founder, John, says, we don't look good in orange. So <laughs> we built systems. We have actually a what's called an AML and KYC, Know Your Customer, Know Your Counterparty digital system. Glad you asked me the question because when we analyzed why banks couldn't do these transactions, because they are good trades, good import-export trades, a lot of the time there was a lack of KYC information about the counterparty or about the product or a lack of track record of the counterparties. So we built a digital system. It's connected to government databases all over the world, sanction checks lists all over the world. So we're checking the owners of the companies, we're checking the companies. And as I mentioned earlier, we're tracking the cargo. So we know the ships that they're on. And even if it's not, say, a, a sanctioned country that owns that ship, if that ship route, that planned route is going to touch a sanctioned country, we drop it. We say, sorry, guys, we, we, we can't do that. You need to choose a different ship or a different route for moving your cargo. Um, otherwise, we just can't take the, uh, the risk. The last commodity question for me, and then we'll get into some of your macro thoughts. But it was April 20th, I think, of 2020 when front month crude oil traded down to minus $39 a barrel. And, and a lot of people don't understand fully why that happened. And in layman's terms, it happened because there was no place to store it. 
it was more cost efficient to sell crude at a negative price than to try to find a place to store it. How did that day impact your business, if at all? In terms of our risk management, I think a good parallel, a good comparison is we've built a clearinghouse view in the futures markets, but for physical commodities. So we build models which every time a customer, an SME supplier or buyer puts a trade forward for us to invest in, our systems look at the commodity, look where it's coming from, where it's going to, how long the journey is going to take. And we ascertain what is the safe level of our investment. Typically, we're averaging like 80% of our money invested in the cargo. It has been as low as 40% during COVID, actually, when the markets were very unpredictable. And so that that kind of slight discount that we're buying the cargo at, because we still own 100% of the cargo, that's like easiest way to put it is like kind of our initial margin. That's our kind of price buffer, right, which protects us against prices going down. So when that happened, we were holding some diesel cargoes here in uh, Asia. And still, those prices did come down a bit with the WTI crude. But we're able to monitor and check the price. And even if the deal failed for any reasons, we could have sold that cargo still at a break-even price. So we weren't, weren't at risk. But it's a good comment and a good question. I mean, we monitor the price of the commodities during shipment. And should the price ever get down to a point where we don't have any of that kind of buffer left, we can call the counterparties for some extra cash. Broadening it out a little bit here now over the last month since the terrorist attack in Israel and obviously the fear that this becomes a a broader situation throughout the Middle East, the the knee-jerk reaction was that crude oil rallied nearly 10%, I think, from the low 80s, right, to the high 80s. It's since settled back in here. Give us a sense of, again, this is not you handicapping the potential for a wider war and a protracted sort of thing. What is your sense, though, being in the oil markets for as long as you have when you have these dust-ups in the Middle East. What is the general impact on crude oil here? And are you surprised that we're looking at WTI in the low 80s right now as Israel expands this kind of invasion into Gaza and what the potential for something in the north with Lebanon and obviously the potential for Iran and the Saudis are are facing some pressure in Yemen. Does this have the potential to turn into something where we're looking at $100 crude oil in the not so distant future? We definitely have a bit of a war risk premium there. I think it's fair to say that the premium that was in there initially for when the Russia-Ukraine thing kicked off has eased. Saudi has been not expanding production deliberately. That's holding crude oil up as well. But I think over and above their support, there's probably a good 6 to $8 per barrel there, which is you know roughly that 10% you were talking about due to these tensions. Big concern is Iran because it has the sea borders with the Straits of Hormuz, And this is the only way in and out of the Gulf there, uh, where we see 40% of the world's seaborne oil come through that straits. It's a very small, narrow piece of sea between the United Arab Emirates and Dubai and and Iran there. And also liquid natural gas as well. It's a very sensitive, small little bit of sea, not very deep. So even sometimes we've seen ships break down there and it still causes a, a panic in the market. So this sort of tension, which is involving proxies of Iran in the Middle East, that's putting people, of course, on edge, and people no doubt are hedging against the over $100 barrel oil if something really kicked off. 
If it doesn't, then yeah, we can ease off a little bit, but not much. If things were, everyone was at peace tomorrow, we might only see back to the high 70s or something like that. We're not seeing a big crash expectation there. So. Tom, I look at commodities as something that has an end use and understanding that gold in some ways has an end use in terms of jewelry and some other things. Effectively, gold to me is not a true commodity and we can debate that, but that's not really. My question is as follows. You've seen it, I'm sure, because you follow these things. Central banks over the last couple of years have been buying gold in record amounts. They're obviously doing it for a reason. And I'm not asking for a price overview, but what are your thoughts about the gold market in terms of what's going on? I wouldn't put myself out there as a gold expert, uh, certainly uh, uh, not big on the precious metal side, but certainly I have seen, and, and certainly based here in Asia, I've seen China has been a record buyer of gold. A lot of the gold in the world. It's also been one of the record producers of gold itself as well. India's always been a regular buyer of gold uh, for traditional reasons. People use it as a store of value. So individuals buy a lot of gold there, not just the government. But certainly, I think we've been seeing you know, a lot of gold buying in Asia, which is certainly in China, potentially helping to prop up the currencies. There's always been the rumors of uh, the Chinese turning around and saying, hey, our currency is gold-backed. We, we need much higher gold prices to, to be able to do that. So I, I think uh, the uh, the experts, uh, certainly last year, there were some reports saying you need over $10,000 per ounce. That could then support currencies again for people to bring back gold standards and stuff like that. I don't think we're going to see any of that happening anytime soon. But certainly, uh, it's interesting in these heightened tension times, we see people buying oil, buying grains because of the problem in Ukraine, and buying some of the precious metals, like the platinum, palladium, and, and gold markets as a store of value. First time I saw people buying oil instead of perhaps buying gold was actually when Colonel Gaddafi got overthrown. It's almost 10 years ago now, back in uh, Libya. We obviously know the main commodities. We discussed them at the top of this show. But what do you think people would be surprised to hear in terms of commodities, maybe it's rare earths or some of the other things that you traffic in that we don't talk about on a day-to-day -day basis? Africa and the rare metals, which are helping drive the electrification of the economies. And we are, again, just like the in the Cold War, but for different reasons, very dependent on a few African countries like the DRC in the west coast of Africa because of key metals which we need for telecommunications, for electric vehicles. So there is a little bit of a kind of a rare earth metal kind of uh, silent war going on in terms of you know, grabbing these resources. So that is actually, if you want to hear something really off planet, is what's driving a lot of investment going on into space mining. And I know some people might think, yeah, okay, that's many decades away. But we're seeing a lot of interesting investment and into real serious technology for mining on the moon, mining asteroids, and very seriously to bring balance back to the supply chain of the rare earth metals, which is distributed in not so friendly countries, so we say at the moment. Yeah, little known fact, we spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about the Godfather one and two, Guy does not recognize the third one, but uh, an area that I am most interested in is the late 90s space mining movies. Do you remember the Armageddon? That's one where we routinely go back to, and I'm joking obviously, but like when you hear serious folks like yourself talk about that, it's really a new concept, I think, to guys like Guy and myself 
involved. So it's fascinating to hear you, you have this fintech platform, you're investing from a logistics standpoint and how to move these things around. The idea that maybe 10 years from now, you're going to have a fund dedicated to space mining is pretty fascinating. Dan brought up Armageddon or all these crazy movies, Deep Impact. By the way, Robert Duvall, I love. You're an author of a book that actually delves into this whole potential business. That's right. Yes, my publisher thought I was crazy, but I didn't give up. I sent him press cuttings for a year, I think, about SpaceX. And uh, finally, in 2018, I, I did a slightly interesting book, not my usual one on boring energy trading and commodity investment, but about deep space commodities. Now some of that's coming true. And I think also a very interesting investment area for people to look at. It's very exciting. The space economy is growing now to, I think it's about three, $400 billion a year now. And that's mainly private companies. Yeah, just to be clear, Guy, Deep Impact did not have a space mining angle. That was more the Armageddon with Harry Stamper. But yeah, we're going to have all, to... They were all blowing up shit. I mean, Well, they are bro- blowing up the world, to be very frank, was really what was going on. <laughs> One had a slightly better ending than the other, and we'll let you guys figure it out. We do find this, just the idea that there is a space economy emerging outside of just SpaceX and satellites is pretty fascinating to us, too. This has been a great conversation, learning about businesses like yours and funds like yours and investing in a way where we spent a lot of time on private credit, but to see some alternatives like this are pretty fascinating to us and to our listeners. Let us know, where can our listeners find you and and, and learn more about Tradeflow Funds? If you Google Tom James Tradeflow, it should pop up, but our website (laughs) is tradeflow.capital. So we're easy to find. We're very active on the net, telling people about the the interesting things that are going on in the supply chain world, which uh, keeps things moving. We will make sure that we put your LinkedIn and your fund's website in the show notes. We appreciate you coming on the pod. We hope you will come back before you launch your space mining fund. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.